Welcome to the Purposeful Parent Podcast, a podcast for inspired parents. I'm Melissa. And I'm Kristen. I'm a parent of two little girls and the founder of Inner Architects. I love guiding parents and giving them a space to meaningfully connect, communicate effectively, break cycles, and learn to intentionally parent their kids. I'm an educator, a children's book author, and founder of Language Ninjas. With Language Ninjas and my books on the power of our words, parents and kids are given tools to empower their language. On this podcast, we are highlighting parents and educators who are choosing to mindfully show up differently for kids. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Purposeful Parent Podcast. Today, we are talking with Ann Coleman, host and founder of Neuroagility. Ann is a mom, attorney, educator, podcaster, and an advocate for parenting teens with more warmth, respect, and emotional intelligence, and less control and punishment. Ann is helping parents better understand their teens and tweens to guide them successfully into adulthood. And Anne, we're very glad to have you here chatting with us today. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Mm -hmm. So you are now helping parents learn about their teens and tweens, and you've had your own experience um, with your teenage son. So we'd love for you to start off by telling us about your parenting journey. Sure. Um, well, and that's that's why I'm here because my um son, he was bless his heart, he was anxious from the time he came out of the womb. And um, he's adopted actually. We brought him home from the hospital, brand new baby, but he screamed and he cried, and we thought, oh, it's colic. But anyway, that screaming and crying just turned into temper tantrums as he got older. And we, my husband and I would look at each other and go, well, at least he's not going to be doing this when he's driving. (gasps) Well, guess what? He's 16 and he's still throwing tantrums and we didn't know how to deal with it. We, the anxiety was part of it, but he also had ADHD. He, um, he had several learning issues. We uh, switched schools for him when he was in ninth grade. We went from private school to a public school so that he could get the IEPs and all the accommodations. But because of that that switch there was switch in friends um you know it was right at the time when you know puberty had set in and he was already anxious and all these things kind of culminated in him deciding that it would be a really good idea for his anxiety to start smoking weed so he started smoking weed unbeknownst to us it went on for a year so it was the end of ninth grade before we had any idea that was going on and by that time things were still kind of okay but it was 10th grade end of 10th grade year on into 11th grade year that things just fell apart and that that weed smoking thing got to be a really big deal for me. I grew up with a drug addicted brother and so that triggered me so bad that my instant gut reaction was to clamp down and no kid of mine is going to do this. And we are not going down this road. I saw this. I grew up with it. I am never, ever going to have a drug addicted child. So my anxiety, which I've always had as well, and ADHD, it kicked in and I could absolutely not control what I was feeling. And I was getting all of this advice from friends and family and, and 
what I grew up with was, you know, you punish, you lecture, you reason with them, you do everything you can to keep them from doing these things. You know, if it's tough love, you do that, whatever it takes. And everybody's like, yeah, if it was my kid, I'd do this and this. So I'm taking all this advice, I'm feeling all this anxiety, I'm controlling, I'm punishing, we're yelling, we're arguing constantly. His um, his emotions were totally out of control. And we had, I mean, I would call them rages. I mean, he would just go into these rages. So long story short, he ends up, we had to have him um, put into a psychiatric hospital for a week. He was threatening suicide. He had major depression put him in there. Um, all the advice we were getting was then put him in residential treatment. We did that couple of months in residential treatment. And, you know, we've been to all the psychiatrists, all the counselors, all the, you know, drug counselors, everything we could. But when he ended up in residential treatment, we had long distance um, family therapy and the family therapist <laughs> We'd get on like this because he's in California. We were in South Carolina and we would get on Skype and the family therapist would try to explain to me before my son would get there. Now, here's how you want to talk to him. You want to validate his emotions and you want to, you know, help him um, do this and learn his emotion words, but you want to have firm boundaries. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what you are saying to me. I have <laughs> no clue what you're talking about. And I, I just couldn't get it. And my husband's sitting there. He he always kind of had that softer touch. I was the problem. Um, but he said, okay, look, go read this book, No Drama Discipline by Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's a book for parents of toddlers, really. <laughs> and uh, that's how bad I was. So, but as I'm reading this book, I mean, it just all came together. And I literally, I mean, I get goosebumps talking about it because I just started crying. I'm like, oh my God, why did I not know this stuff? Why did somebody not explain these things to me and how this worked? And so I learned the concepts or I, I, I learned of the concepts in that book of emotion coaching and emotional intelligence and what role our emotions play in, you know, raising our children. And all none of those things had ever occurred to me. I'd never read it from the time he was little and, you know, all the way through school. It was all about his ADHD. It was all about school. It was all about, you know, the dyslexia and the dysgraphia and trying to get him to do his homework and the teachers were complaining. And, you know, that was the focus. And, but it was never, the focus was never on emotions and, and learning all these things. So, I read that book and then I was like, oh my God, what is this thing about emotional intelligence? So I read Dan Goldman's book on emotional intelligence and I'm like, okay, I've got to learn about the teenage brain. So I read tons and tons of books and tons and tons of studies. So that's what I've been doing for the past five years is learning all of these things that I did not know. But as I started learning them, when he was in residential, he was almost 18. He was literally weeks away from turning 18. So we knew, you know, we had to figure this out quick because once they turn 18, they can walk out of residential. They can walk out of your home and out of your life forever. And we knew he needed help. So I figured this stuff out with this book. I started learning more. He comes home from residential and we start putting all these things into play. And at first, when when you change your whole parenting approach and do a 180, let me tell you, your kids don't trust what's going on. They're very skeptical of it. And they're like, what the heck, mom? I mean, what, what's this? And so 
in the beginning, and I tell parents this in the beginning, when you're doing these things and you're trying to come at them from a different angle, they don't know what's going on. And they're probably still going to keep doing the same things they were doing. It takes a while to convince them that you're serious and that you are going to change your behavior because what I've learned, and that's what I, I try to tell parents it is not just your kid. It is your behavior. Your behavior influences their behavior. If you're dysregulated, they are dysregulated. If you can't get a grip, they can't get a grip. And what happens is when adolescents hit you know, puberty, once they're, you know, anywhere from 10 to 12 and all that stuff starts happening in their brain, their brain changes. If we don't understand how those things change their thoughts, their emotions, and their behavior, then we respond not with empathy and not with understanding, but with, oh my God, they're so like mean to me and they don't talk to me. And why are they being, you know, why are they being such a butthole? And why are they <laughs> getting angry for no reason? If you don't understand what the brain is making them do, then your response is totally not aligned with what's going on. And that that's where I was. And there are so many people that don't understand these things. So that's, that's the first thing to understand. And that um, I, th I told you guys, you know, I have like a, a four part framework that's really taken me about five years to kind of all these things have come together to realize, okay, these are the things that we really need to do and understand as parents to be able to strengthen our relationship with our teenagers and to be able to avoid all the conflict that just normally comes with parenting teens. So learning about their brain, and I, I can go into detail as much as you guys want to, but that's, that's the first part of it. Yeah, I like um where back to where you said to when he came home and um yeah you change who you are, you change what you've done you're doing and they don't trust it. And I right. one of my years of teaching, I took a deep dive into personal development about through two thirds of the way into the year. And yeah. so I come back like after this week vacation of doing a deep dive in personal development. I'm like, okay, I'm getting this. I actually like finally know what I want to do in the classroom right. because I've figured out me. And I had had plenty of behavior pushback with the kids and the kids, they just looked at me. I'm like, like, <laughs> who are you and yes. what are you trying to do? And, and where's our teacher? Yeah, where, where's that person that like yep. got, would fly off the handle if I did this? And yeah, so they, that pushback, um, it, it, that it one does. I mean, me laugh. <laughs> You just have to keep at it. And um, so, you know, once we learn that, you know, when they're going through um, adolescence, their brain, number one, the, the emotional center of their brain, it goes into overdrive. It becomes very sensitive. So any little thing will set them off. It puts them in fight or flight mode so that their amygdala thinks that everything around them is a threat. So it's like they're constantly thinking, oh, snake, tiger, whatever. Mm -hmm. So, And mom's voice has been scientifically shown to be one of those things that threatens them. Mm -hmm. So when we just say, 
hey, have you done your homework in the sweetest, nicest little voice? You know, that's what you get back because that their brain literally thinks that you're attacking them. I remember my son saying, stop screaming at me. And I'm like, oh my God, I am not screaming. I'm talking in a normal voice. Are you kidding me? But they, that is how their brain works. They're not crazy. That's how their brain works. So moodiness and, you know, and not, um, not being able to regulate their emotions, that is part of being a teenager. But when they when they don't realize that, you know, that they're having these problems too, they don't know what's going on. So they get just as upset. So so what happens when they hit puberty and that emotional center goes goes crazy and they start getting, you know, um agitated for no reason, they start getting moody. The other part of the brain, the reward center, also all this extra dopamine is floating around in their brain. The prefrontal cortex is not using the reuptake stuff. And so it's not taking up that dopamine. So all this extra dopamine is floating around. Everything is super exciting, super fun. Things that have never been that pleasurable before become pleasurable during adolescence. Things are more pleasurable, more exciting, and more rewarding during adolescence than it ever will be in adulthood because that dopamine starts starts disintegrating after adolescence. So during adolescence, their reward center tells them, go do this thing, go have this fun. Yes, it's fine to take risks. It's fine to smoke a little weed or or drink a little alcohol or jump off a bridge with your friends or whatever. And then the social center of the brain, was well, there's like this several other parts of the brain that kind of comes together and it's attached to the amygdala and it's attached to the reward system. And it comes together to say, you know what, it's a lot more fun to do these things when you're with your peers. It's, you know, so they they do the riskier things when they're with their friends because it gives them that reward, that that dopamine, um, that pleasurable feeling, and it reinforces it. And one of the reasons it does that is because that part of their brain is also telling them that the most important thing you can do right now is to be accepted by your peers. The most important thing is to be part of a group, to be accepted, and, and everything that's why everything is so embarrassing to them. And, you know, I I read in a Facebook group the other day, one of the moms was like, my kid won't walk beside me. She has to walk 10 feet in front of me and she won't even hold a door open and I have a broken leg. And, and I'm like, you know what? That's just part of it. They're embarrassed by everything we do, embarrassed by everything we say. They don't want to be beside us anymore. But what parents do have to understand is that that's normal number 1 if they didn't do this and they didn't have this reward center telling them to go out and do things and have fun and meet new people and socialize and find a mate and move on they'd be 30 and living in our basement still this is evolution it's part of it and the they don't have a lot of empathy they're still growing the prefrontal cortex is still growing in the brain. That's the part of the brain that controls executive function. It controls focus and planning and self-control and making good decisions. That part of the brain won't be finished until they're at least in their mid-20s, possibly even 30. So that part of the brain also controls empathy.
healthy. So they're not get they're not real empathetic for parents for sure. They're not real empathetic for each other. Um, although some would argue they're even more empathetic these days with social media than than not. But from what I see, they're still not very empathetic. So you know, parents see these things and they think, you know, they think because they look kind of adult, they should be acting more like adults. And we have empathy. So why don't they have empathy? And they know this thing is wrong. So why are they doing it? They know how stupid it is to go jump off a bridge. They know how stupid it is to try this drug or do this thing. Why are they doing it? People assume it's because they feel invincible. No, that is not it at all. They weigh the reward against the risk and they decide that the big reward is worth it, that it's worth the risk. And they make that decision just like that. But that's why they do these things. They feel like, look, it's so rewarding. That reward system is so strong. That's why social media is the way it is, because the likes, the the uh, constant scrolling, all of those things work with their reward system and it it makes it more appealing. It makes it literally addictive for them. And that's why, um, you know, during adolescence, it's so much easier to become addicted to things because the reward system is so strong and their prefrontal cortex, the synapses between the neurons and their brain are strengthening and are being pruned at the same time. Things they're not doing, those synapses are being pruned way. So if they don't learn, say, a foreign language during adolescence, it's a lot harder to learn it when you're an adult. But if they learn a foreign language, then they're probably it's probably going to stick with them for a while. Same thing with these risky things that are rewarding in a different way, the drugs and the drinking and the vaping. If they start doing it in adolescence, those synapses are strengthened for those things. And it's a lot harder to undo it later. So that's why kids who, you know, start drinking, vaping, doing all these things, it's really, really hard to undo that. And it has been proven the younger you start doing those things, the harder it is or the the more likely it is that they will be addicted when they're older. You can ask older people who are addicted, when did you start using? It's generally 14, 15. So all of those things make it so hard for parents because we don't get it. We don't understand. So understanding those things, having that empathy and understanding why your child is doing these things and knowing they aren't doing this on purpose. They are not trying to be assholes. They, it's their brain and you have to have empathy for that. And it is so freaking hard because they are big and they're stinky and they're hairy and they're not as cute as they used to be. And, you know, they're not cuddly anymore. It was easy to have empathy for them when they were two and they were crying because they skinned their knee, but their brain is going through the same stuff that it was going through when they were between one and three. It's doing the same thing to them. So you just have to kind of picture them as this giant toddler, you know, throwing a little toddler fit and you have to be kind to them and you have to, and that's the other part of the framework is you have to understand how to respond to them during their big emotions when they are having their meltdowns and they are 
are falling apart. You have to understand that instead of meeting them with, oh my God, calm down. It's not that big a deal. These people, you won't even remember them 25 years from now. It's so it's a like on social media. Don't worry about it. We'll just, you know, forget about her. She wasn't good for you anyway. Those things are like pouring fuel on a fire for a kid, for anyone, frankly, because what you're doing is you're invalidating their emotions. You're telling them you're being ridiculous. You're stupid. You don't know what you're feeling. I'm telling you how you should feel. And it shouldn't be that way. So, and that's what I was doing to my son constantly. Calm down, calm down. Because it freaked me out. It made me anxious. So I just wanted him to stop, you know? And so as parents, when we just want them to stop, we have to stop and realize that that's not possible in that moment. We can't just make it stop. What we have to do is be with them in that moment and realize that they need us. They need our prefrontal cortex that is complete. They need us to step in and help them regulate themselves. And, you know, kids with ADHD, anxiety, depression, you know, any kind of thing, they're the ones that even need this more. Um, so we have to stop ourselves and go, okay. Take a deep breath. Yes, they just called me a name. Yes, they sound very disrespectful right now. Yes, they just punched a hole in their wall or they threw something down or they said a cuss word, whatever. Take a breath because right now is not the time to jump in and tell them not to do that thing. You can do that, but they have to get to a calm place because they will not hear a word you're saying. And what you're going to do is make it 10,000 times worse. So it's been shown that, you know, even a loving touch, a pat, a, just a hand on their shoulder or touch their hand or, you know, hug them if they'll let you. Sometimes it's like, you know, trying to hug a porcupine. But in that moment, the the um, neurotransmitter oxytocin that's the neurotransmitter that that mothers' brains put off when ba and and babies get when they're breastfeeding or when there's a hug, and that's what you're doing. Just a simple touch like that will set off that oxytocin, which will help combat what's going on in the brain, and it can help them calm down. The other thing that helps is instead of invalidating their emotions, please calm down, shut up, what are you doing? Don't be silly. Instead of doing that, you say, "Oh my gosh." I can see how frustrated you are right now, which sounds really silly when you're talking about a kid putting their fists through the wall. So maybe it's not that that those words exactly, but I get I, I see how angry angry you are. And in, in some of those cases, you just want to back off and let them blow the steam and then you say something. But you can say, look, I understand if you don't know what's going on, instead of saying, what's going on? What's happened? What is it? Start with, I can see you're upset. You know, I'll back up if you want me to, but, you know, do you want to tell me what's going on? Or, you know, I can see that you're really angry right now. And if you do know what's happened, you can say, you know what? You have a right to be angry when somebody treats you that way. Or, you know, I would be frustrated too if so-and-so said that on, on Instagram or whatever it is. So you, you validate them and let them know that they have a right 
to feel any way they want to feel. They may not have a right to do or behave the way they're behaving, but that can be addressed later. So they they punch a hole in the wall. If you've got a son, you know what I'm talking about. If they punch a hole in the wall, you say, you know, after they're calm and after everything's, you know, done, then you say, let's go get the patch and let's patch the wall because, you know, we can't put holes in the wall. And you know that. Um, But giving them that emotion word to use, first of all, what you're helping them is to learn um, about their own emotions, to become more emotionally aware of what's going on. And then you're helping them calm down just by validating the fact that they have a right to feel what they feel. And then you can help them, you know, if you ask them a few questions, maybe curiosity questions like, you know, can you tell me exactly how did that make you feel or what was going on or, you know, ask a few questions. Eventually, they get to the point where they can work their own problems out instead of jumping in and saying, well, why don't you just do this? Or why don't you just do that? Or tell her this or send an email or do this or do that or try to jump in there and fix it for them. You wait and let them ask you what to do. If they want your advice, they'll ask for it. And otherwise, you're just kind of nudging them along to help them figure out what they want to do about whatever it is that's happened. And, um, you know, if you start going in and trying to fix it, then they're just going to blow up again. So th- this is called emotion coaching is what it is. And it's it was um, kind of found or discovered by Dr. John Gottman, who he's the Gottman that does the the family, the um, marriage counseling Gottman. Mm-hmm. But he, I think this was first. So he has a book called Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child. And it's very, very good. And it goes through the basics of emotion coaching. But that's that's what you want to learn. Um, and then thirdly, we have to get our emotions in order. We have got to be emotionally aware. We have to know. I love how um, uh, uh, Dan Siegel puts it is learning your shark music, knowing your shark music. So, you know, that da-dum, you know, we all have that in us somewhere. Mine was my brother's um, drug addiction. And that shark music was playing loud in my head every time I came into a situation with my son who'd been using marijuana. So we have to know what is it that is causing us to be triggered right now? What is it that is, you know, really sending us over the edge? And once we can realize those things, bringing that awareness to it helps us then be able to kind of have that space in between that trigger and how we respond to our kids. But if you if you can't get that space and you can't get, you know, regulated yourself, you're going to have a really hard time doing emotion coaching. You're going to have a really hard time, you know, connecting with your kid. So that's a huge part of it. And then the last part of this is learning how to discipline your teen and tween. A, it discipline and parenting in, at this age is much, much different than it was before. When they're little, you're their manager. You tell them everything. You are constantly telling them what to do. And they listen and they do it 90% of the time or 75% of the time. But as they get older, it's more about guiding than, inst- than 
telling, you know, the days of saying, you've got to do this or do this, do this now, do what I say right this minute, that's over. And, and you start doing that. And that's when the rebellion happens, because that's exactly what happened with my son. Um, you know, the more I said, you are going to do this, the more he was like, oh, no, I ain't. I'm going to do what I want to do. So we have to understand that supporting their autonomy, being able to listen to their opinions, understand that they have, you know, a big, huge part to play in this, that this is their life. They're old enough to start giving them some of the, you know, one of the reins and letting them kind of take control a little bit, knowing what you should have rules about and what you shouldn't have rules about, what things they should be able to decide on their own, letting them make mistakes and learn from those mistakes and understanding that, you know, everything is a discussion. Everything is a negotiation. There's no more telling. There's no more management you know, the, and if you're going to do consequences, those consequences need to be discussed, that the rules need to be discussed, consequences need to be logical, and they don't need to be crazy, you know, and the phone is not up for grabs for every single thing. <laughs> so, in a nutshell, that's consequences. It, you know, <laughs> if they do something wrong with their phone, maybe their phone is up for grabs. If not, it needs to be logical. And it doesn't always have to be that they get consequences the very first time they do something wrong. You can have a discussion with a lot of kids and they will understand, okay, I don't need to do that again. And you can work around, you know, the whole thing is what skill are they lacking? You're trying to teach them skills for adulthood, not punish them, not teach them a lesson as in, I'll show you who's boss. That's not the point here. The point is to raise a functioning adult who can, you know, live in the world without us right there telling them what to do every second. So if you don't give them that space and you don't let them make decisions and you don't, you know, work with them to learn how to do these things, like get home on time. Don't let your phone die. Here's an extra charger. Take that. Or let's make sure that you have your phone charged before you leave. You don't have to, you know, give them consequences the first time they come home 20 minutes late. So learning those things and learning that you don't have to be a hard ass parent for a teenager. That's the biggest thing I would say is that, you know, a lot of us have the wrong idea about how to parent teens. We think that if we're not a hard ass, that they're just going to run all over us and they're going to do what they want to do and they're going to end up in jail. <laughs> and that's just not the case. The biggest part of this is keeping your connection, your close connection with your teenager, because if you're connected and they feel like they have a say in their life and they feel like you listen to them and they feel like you respect their emotions and they feel like you discuss things with them, they will share things with you. They will tell you what's going on in their life and you will have influence with them that you wouldn't have if you were trying to tell them what to do because telling them what to do is a surefire way for them to say, uh-uh, not going to happen. So there's my speech. <laughs> um, I am just like putting this all up. Obviously, my kids are a little um, and already seeing some of these things. It's a beautiful, some of the things that I'm continuing to work through. Um, I'm, I took some notes because you, you just 
much um discipline while emotions was one of the things that I wanted to unpack okay is my my cutting in you've been cutting in and out yeah okay. I think it what are you talking about like validate validating their emotions what I wanted to talk about I found in my parenting, Chris, I don't want to have to cut out a ton of stuff. Um, do you want to write? Do you want to like write what that oh, was? Because we can cut that and we can, she can tell us because we want to hear your question. So <laughs> trying to discipline five, yeah, validating emotions. Trying, yeah. I was trying to do both at the same time. Oh, yes. Time. Yep, yep, yep. Well, and that's what, you know, you hear this catchphrase a lot. Um, connection before correction. And that's what that means is that you want to connect first, which is helping them calm down, validating their emotions, helping them with an emotion word, name it to tame it. That's another catchphrase. That's a Dan Siegel thing. So you want to help them name what they're feeling, validate it by, um, you know, saying, reflecting back to them, what you're seeing or what they're saying. Like, yes, I understand how frustrating it is when somebody says that you've done something that you really haven't done. I understand how, you know, annoying it can be when somebody's always following you around and wanting to do stuff and you don't want to do stuff with them. You know, give them that validation first and wait until they are calm, which sometimes that could be the following day. If it's a big deal, something really bad has happened, they've gotten in trouble at school or something like that, or you've had a big you know, blow up at home, they've blown up at you, wait until the next day or even the next day. It does not have to be immediate. So when, when one of the, the worst things is, you know, kids will say, um, you know, things that use a tone or, you know, say something smart alecky and parents want to stop them right dead in their tracks right then and say, do not talk to me that way. I will not have it. Do not disrespect me. Well, let me tell you, that's fine, but that does not need to happen right then. You need to wait, let them say whatever they need to say. They can't help it. If they could do better in that moment, they would be doing better. That's what we have to get through our heads. They're not adults. They're, they don't have the self-control. They do not have the good decision-making yet. So they are incapable. When their amygdala takes over, they are incapable of calming down. They are incapable of using kind words <laughs> with us. They do what they do because they can't help it. Okay, so getting that through our thick heads is one of the hardest things in the world to do, I found. You know, I just could not get it through my head that he couldn't do better if he wanted to. Because here's what happens. We see our kids you know, concentrate on video games, on these tedious video games or on, you know, YouTube videos or whatever for hours on end. And they learn things that they would never learn in school, yet we can't get them to do 15 minutes of algebra homework or, you know, to study 10 minutes for a pop quiz. And we're like, well, we know they can do that because look at, look what they do over here. Okay. 
that is, you, we can't look at it that way because the way their brain works, it is much easier for them to concentrate on the things that do hit that reward center and that does excite them and that is interesting to them. Who is interested in history when you're in the eighth grade? I mean, good Lord, it it's hard for them to do some of these things. So having that empathy understanding they're not doing this to get at you. They're not doing this because they they want to be a butthole about it. They're doing it because that's how their freaking brain works. So understanding that having that empathy piece is a huge part for us to be able to regulate our own emotions. Because if not, if we've got it in their head that they're just doing this because they're little buttholes and they're they're trying to drive me crazy and they could do better if they wanted to, then of course you're not going to have as much empathy. And of course it's you're going to be dysregulated with them. So that that is just such a huge part. And and I will say to get yourself to that point where you can be regulated start doing, start journaling. If you will write down what happens, you know, what are those times that your kid just absolutely sends you over the edge and you can't control yourself? What's going on at that moment? What is it that that is triggering in your brain? What are you thinking about? Does it take you back somewhere? Try to make those connections. And once you make the connection, it's amazing how then it just almost automatically gives you some regulation because you know where it's coming from and you're like, oh, wait, oh my gosh, I'm doing that again. And then you're able to take a breath and go, okay, let me come at this in a more regulated way. What was it she said to do? Oh yeah, validate their emotions. Now, how do I do that again? And that's how it is in the beginning. I will tell you, I had a cheat sheet and I sat there and I would, I would go, okay, wait a minute, what am I supposed to do? Because I would get so nervous about it. When he was dysregulated, I would get anxious and I, I I couldn't think, you know, my amygdala was taken over my prefrontal cortex and I couldn't think. And so, you know, it takes practice. It is not easy. And it's a whole lot easier to yell and scream and punish and, you know, keep trying to take the phone away, take the door off the hinges, nail their windows shut, as somebody suggested the other day in a Facebook group because they were sneaking out. And and, and everybody's like, oh, don't do that. And I thought, oh, my God, I literally did that one day. Uh-huh. <laughs> I did. I did. I took the nails back out like that night. But I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to let him sneak out this window. I mean, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. But anyway, if we can just regulate ourselves and understand that we are not doing our kid any good. We are not doing our family any good by trying to clamp down on them and make sure that they're safe. Because what you're doing is you are guaranteeing that that kid's going to go off and do something that isn't safe because they're not telling you what they're doing. They're lying. They're sneaking around. They're going underground with their behavior and, you know, it, you you can't help them then. You can't influence them then. That connection with them is everything, everything. Please remember that. And so after parents who start getting regulated and they're in that moment, like hearing their teens saying all these things about how, how terrible you are and how you don't listen to me and all of that. Do you have tips for parents in those moments when they are able to start getting that pause and they're hearing all these negative words coming their, their way, like things that they can do to help 
stay yes. regulated and calm. Well, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. one thing is if you if you find yourself not being calm and you you feel it coming mm-hmm. on and you know you cannot stay calm, then separate yourselves from your child right then. Just say, I I, I can't, I can't. <laughs> that was my thing. It was like, I can't, I can't do this right now. I'm gonna go in my room and don't follow me. And you go in the room and you close the door. If they if they follow you, which my kid would do, I would walk out of the room and I would walk outside and I walk down the street or I'd get in my car. I mean, literally separate yourself physically from your child. If you don't feel like you can regulate yourself. And if they are that dysregulated, that they're not even responding to you trying to help them, then separate yourself. And, um, what was it? You, you asked, um, something specific. I had an answer for that too. Um, oh, when they're, when they're saying things to you and they're, you know, saying you don't understand and you're not listening or whatever, you can literally stand there and say, I am listening. I want to listen and then shut your mouth. And that was the hardest thing for me to do because I'm not a, I mean, as you can see, I'm a talker (laughs) and I want to talk and I want to tell, I want to tell everybody how to do things like right now you do it the way I want you to do it because I know what I'm talking about. That's me. And so that's what I did with my kid. And so if you can learn to just keep your mouth shut and let them get it out, do not interrupt them and tell them if they say you're not listening, I, I am listening. I am here as long as you need me. And then sit your butt down and listen and don't interrupt them when they, and, and this is another thing that the parents will do is like, they start saying, you don't ever let me do anything. You don't ever do this. You always do this. And it's natural. It's a human instinct to go, are you kidding? Yes, I do. I just let you do blah, blah, blah. Or I just bought you the $150 pair of shoes or whatever it is. It's instinct. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do not argue. There is nothing good at all to come out of defending yourself with your dysregulated teenager. Nothing at all. You know, I this happened with me over and over and over again. And every single time I'd jump in there and say, I'd start listing it off. This is what I've done. And this is what I've done. And this is, it's pointless. Number one, again, they do not hear you. They they are overtaken by their amygdala. They do not have a prefrontal cortex to help them control it. They don't hear a word you're saying. There's no point. Um, I mean, after the whole thing's over, after you have sat quietly, you've listened, and they've started to kind of calm down, or you've separated yourself and you come back later and they've calmed down. Then you can have a simple discussion and say, you know, what you said yesterday or what you said a couple hours ago about me not ever doing blah, blah, blah. And before you even get it finished, they're going to say, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I know you just bought me this. You just did this. If you will give your child a chance, they will apologize. They know what they're saying is not right. But they can't stop it in that moment. But upon reflection, if you will connect with them and you will come back later when they're calm and have a calm discussion, I can't even tell you how many times my son apologized to me. 
And, you know, he knew and I knew and we both apologize. So it's just being able to stop yourself in that moment. And, and again, if you can't, then walk away, tell, tell them you're walking away and that you don't feel like you can do it right now, that you feel like you're going to lose control and you don't want to say anything you don't want to say and then leave and, and, but let them know we'll, I'll, we'll come back when I'm more regulated or when you're more regulated, we'll come back and talk in a few minutes. But yeah, there's sometimes when you can't even do that emotion coaching, you can't even, you know, begin to do it because your, your child's throwing things or, you know, or you feel like you're going to throw something, you just have to separate. Yeah. Well, and this has been such a great conversation. I'm sure there's so much more, so many more questions we could ask. And um, well, Melissa, well, let, if there's any questions, if you want to type too, but while, while you're doing that, um, and do you want to tell us briefly about neuroagility and about your podcast, Speaking of sure. Teens? Sure. Yeah. I have a podcast called Speaking of Teens and you can find it on any of the podcast apps, but you can also go to speakingofteens.com on my website and all the, um, all of the episodes right there. And um, we also have a Facebook group speaking at speaking of teens. But if you'll go to my website, website, speakingofteens.com, um, it's right there at the top. I have resources, free resources, all sorts of parenting guides, um, a couple of them that will walk you through the emotion coaching, uh, one that's called 10 keys to um, unlock your child, your teen's emotional intelligence that walks you through the emotion coaching. Um, and so, and there's also a wait list on the website for a parenting course that will come out sometime in September or October. But um, the podcast is good. We talk about all of these things in the podcast. You can go back to all the old episodes and listen. And all I want to do is help because I know how hard and lonely it can be when you're in the middle of this with a teenager and you don't know what to do. And, and there's no one around, no one else around admitting that they're having the same problem. <laughs> Everybody looks all happy, happy on Facebook. And you think you're the only one. Well, let me tell you, that's not true. So you're not alone. Yeah. And the podcast has so many, so, so many topics that um, you come up against with teens. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, phones, social media. Um, there are so many more. Andrew Tate. I don't know if <laughs> yes. you know who Andrew Tate is, mm -hmm. but moms of, of young boys know who Andrew Tate is. I even did one on Andrew Tate. He's this influencer that's turning little boys into misogynists. So yeah, it's, um, it's interesting out there. Mm -hmm. I tell you, the social media is what is just flipped everything on its head. So I really feel for parents. It is really hard these days. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so is there anywhere other than your website that listeners can go to find out more about you and everything? That well, I mean, the Facebook group mm -hmm, the, yeah. and the Instagram, I'm at Neuroagility. Neuroagility is the name of the business that I started to do the parenting courses through. So it's spelled Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, and then Gility, G-I-L-I-T-Y. And I'm on Instagram there. Um, but I've kind of taken a break from Instagram because you know what? You just can't do all the things. It's just impossible <laughs> to do all the things. So I'm concentrating right now on the podcast. I feel like that's the best way like you guys are doing, you know, to get the word out to people. It's free for people to listen and, you know, we can spread so much good information. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. I appreciate you having me on and um, I look forward to, you know, 
hearing from you guys in the future and doing some stuff together. Yeah. And before we let you go too, we like to end with asking our guests if they're they have any tips or actionable items that a parent can take to parent more purposefully? Okay. All right. Well, so with teens right now, what I would say is there's something, um, I think it was Dr. John Duffy calls it the emotional bank account. And it's been shown, um, and I think this might be a Gottman thing too. Yeah. That it takes five positive interactions with someone to counteract one negative. And with teenagers, it's been shown that everything's negative. So it probably takes more like 10 positives to counterbalance a negative. And with a teenager, a negative is nagging, asking, you know, nagging to them is reminding them to do something. Pick this up, do this. Have you done your homework yet? Please don't do that. Don't forget this, blah, blah. You know, we do that a million times a day. So to be more purposeful with your child, with your teenager, start trying to fill the day with as many positive interactions with your kid as you can to counteract those negative. So asking them to show you something that they thought was funny on TikTok, asking them to show you how to play the video game with them, sing along with their favorite song that they listen to, you know, don't criticize the things that they like. Instead, get them to show you how to like it or show you more about it, show interest in what they're interested in, you know, show them how to bake something with you or get them to help you do something that, you know, you need to learn how to do on a computer, any positive interactions you can do. Oh, and one little thing, and I'll, I'll end with this, but one thing that I find really helpful um, with kids is get out the baby book. And walk in their room one night with the baby book and start flipping through and showing them things that they cute little things they did when they were little or go find their old Batman cape or their their favorite book they had and go, oh, do you remember we used to do this? I mean, my son would die if he heard me say this, but I did this little piggy with him until he was like, I don't know, 15 or 16. (laughs) I mean, when they when they are brought back to that childhood moment, that little, it, it really does help you connect. So think about that. You know, if you want to do a little instant connection, bring out something from their, their childhood, tell them something funny they did when they were little. And um, it, it really can make a really good connection. So yeah, my tip is more positives than negatives. Love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for this conversation today. You're so welcome. It was great meeting you guys. You too. Thank you for listening to the Purposeful Parent Podcast. We had a really great time talking with our guests today and hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Make sure to check out the show notes to get more information on today's guests and to check out what they are up to. To learn more about Melissa and Kristen, follow The Purposeful Parent on Instagram. You can also check out what Melissa is up to by following Inner Architect on Instagram. And to keep up with Kristen, follow Language Ninjas on Instagram. We'd love to hear how you are choosing to purposefully parent, so please feel, feel free to reach out and say hi.